Hello, this is your host, Paul Harvey at Life, Passion and Business. I realise I put this at the end of the programme most of the time. And I also realise I don't often listen to the end of podcasts. So I thought about tell you here before we get started. So the first thing is this podcast is not supported in any way. We have no sponsorship. So if you would like to support us, do check out the Buy Me A Coffee link on this podcast app. And you also find it at the website. Now, also, if you are interested in the five questions and would like to answer them yourself, do check out the resources tab at the website because the five questions is available as a workbook and an ebook. And if you want to know why that's important, check out the end of the podcast or go and check out the resources tab at the website. That's enough for me. Let's get on with the program. My name is Paul Harvey, and you are listening to Life, Passion and Business, a podcast born out of my desire to find greater meaning in life at the time when I thought there was none. Since that day, I have spoken to hundreds of people, and what I have discovered is that our story is everything, because what we do, feel or experience is based on the stories that we tell ourselves. It's time to explore what it means to live a good life. How do we make this experience better? And more importantly, how do we lead the world to a better place? With the intention that at the end of it, people will have really made big strides in unbecoming the things that they were never supposed to be. They'll start to see, oh, wow, I was led to believe that this was real, but actually it's a social construct that was designed to hold me back and keep me small. We do not know what we do not know. This conversation is about how we see the world and how there are layers to our reality. The point is some people manage to live a good life and never even consider how they might influence or manage its direction. They live in blissful ignorance and accept the journey as it is, as though it were fate or just is. My father would have been one of those people and sadly he was rarely happy. It is back to stories and narratives and frameworks of society and how we are shaped by them. My guest on the show today is Dr. Morgana McCabe-Allen. It was her PhD that put her on the path to explore the patterns and constructs that we create for ourselves. It led her developing her models on the concept of radical wholeness. Morgana was born in Paisley in Scotland and at the time the area was in severe industrial decline. It became one of the poorest regions of Scotland with associated drugs and poverty. So humble beginnings. She also endured a lot of childhood illness which kept her out of early education. In these situations families either buckle or sink or rise above it. Luckily, Morgana's parents were able to model how to be better, and it gave her the support and resilience that she needed. She started her first business when she was eight years old, breeding small animals, and went on to volunteering work as, she was, as soon as she was old enough before starting work in the retail industry. On leaving school, she tried university, but it was not for her. However, she went back as a mature student at the age of 22. I have to chuckle at the idea of being 22, being mature, but I do get the point. She chose archaeology, anthropology and Hispanic studies, which had loads of opportunity for field work and travel. Now in inter-education, she did her undergrad, masters and PhD back to back over 13 years. It was here that she laid the groundwork for her book. It all led to a multidisciplinary PhD and she knew it would either be accepted or without corrections or rejected 
and as it happened it was acclaimed and the path to academia was open for her, but she knew she would never stay. Our conversation is to look at that construct of society and how we can move beyond them. For Morgana, the work she started in her PhD needed to be taken out into the world. She left the university and worked with a charity for a year before going on to start her current project. Today, Morgana is a business mindset and manifestation mentor. She's the author of the book Unbecoming, Your Unorthodox Guide to Radical Wholeness. Let's join the conversation with Dr. Morgana McGay-Ballon. Uh, look, this is life, passion and business, and it's about exploring that idea about how we do this journey that, you know, life, how does it work? Mm-hmm. And that's how it started for me. I was asking this question of people, how do you do this thing? So where did it all begin for you? That's a really good question. Um, life and business have always been very intimately connected for me. Um, my mom started a business when I was really young, so I was brought into her business as a child, you know, I think I was seven years old when I started uh, panicking, meeting deadlines at midnight for a wedding the next day and stuff like that. Um, And I started my own first business adventure when I was eight. So for me, life and business and passion have always been deeply entwined. To me, business is just um, one of the lenses that which we focus our life through. That's that's kind of how how it's going to be. I know it's in the title, but it's kind of how it's, it is so significant for people. But where did it begin for you? What, did, what is it you wanted to be and do when you were, when you were young? So <laughs> I used to homeschool all my teddy bears. I was a very ill child, actually. I missed six years of school if you add it up across primary school and high school. Wow. And so I had a lot of time alone. And I used to homeschool all my teddies. And every couple of weeks, I would give them a graduation party. And I would send them all off to do different careers and things like that. And um, there's a lot of home video and photography and stuff of of this stage in my life. Um, And so I always had this real passion for supporting and educating others and for uh, helping people to kind of move forward in their lives. And I think it came from me feeling uh, I had to make every minute that I was well count. You know, like I felt like I had to pack three times as much life into the into the days where I felt good as everybody else because I couldn't take for granted that the next one would be one of those days. Mm. It's nasty when those sort of things happen, but there's often there's always a silver not always, but there is a nice silver lining to it as you can when you can when you can treat it like that. And you were very mature for your age to be able to do that, weren't you, in some respects? Uh, well, I'm an oldest child, which I think helps. Mm-hmm. And um and my parents had a lot of struggles. Um particularly financial struggles and so from a really young age I had this sort of deep sense of responsibility that we have to create our own lives and that we you know we have to show up for what we want to experience and that it's not just going to be kind of handed to you and I don't think that was necessarily an intentional lesson on their part it was a consequence of I mean when I say that we were poor I mean there was a point in my life where there was ice on the floor inside the house and my parents had to walk to the local fish and chip shop with a bucket to get water and we had rats and like we lived in Paisley which is a very poor community in Scotland at that time and people used to walk past and throw like needles and like bottles and stuff into our garden so I wasn't even allowed to play in the garden so um they faced a lot of challenges and I think as a consequence though they really modeled a 
that passion for education and that passion for you know for working and creating something for yourself it's amazing they took it's amazing they they had that capacity to do that because it's you know people a lot of people were brought up in that circumstance and go either one way or the other Mm, yeah my parents hadn't been brought up in that circumstance it was just it it happened that they found themselves in that situation through their commitment to one another um, my mom, when she was young, lived in a seven-bedroom apartment and they had a chauffeur-driven car to take them on trips in the summer. <laughs> um, my dad had grown up in Maryhill in a, you know, in a poor community, but his parents had moved out of there when he was 10 and created a really quite um, affluent lifestyle. Um, but when they, when they picked each other and set themselves on that path, uh, it meant starting from scratch. They didn't have that sort of support from their families. Mm. So obviously a very um, difficult childhood in terms of that, but obviously you 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 develop resilience from that experience. How did it? How did the story unfold from them? Did you do college and that sort of stuff? Did you did you have a career path you were looking for? Um, I was always entrepreneurial. I also always did a lot of volunteer work, which stood me in very good stead. So. I um that that business that I started when I was eight was um breeding pets small animals like hamsters and rabbits and things I had that until I was 14 I also volunteered working in a local country park zoo and worked with animals there and so I was already demonstrating a high level of responsibility from a really young age um which made it easy to get my first job as a, a manager in a store when I was 16 and I so I was working through retail and finishing off my high school and stuff. Um, I did one year of university and had like, I just didn't have the emotional capacity for any more. Like I had, I just, I, I wasn't ready for it. So I ended up taking some years out um, and continuing my entrepreneurial journey at that time as well. So when I went back to university, I was already, I was there as a mature student, was 22 and I was ready for it by then. And so I did my undergraduate master's and PhD all back to back for 13 consecutive years. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that before of people. Actually. Some went to university young and they couldn't they couldn't partake in all the fun because they were too young to drink and that sort of stuff. So it's just it was like a pointless experience, educational experience, yeah. but they got they missed out on it so much else. So I can understand that. Isn't that? Yeah. Yeah. So you got all your, what did you get your, what did you study when you at university? So my undergraduate, I did archaeology, anthropology and Hispanic studies. And I, um, I really picked them because they were far outside what I had been good at, at school. At school, I was like physics, chemistry, biology all the way. Everybody thought I would be a scientist. And when I went to university the first time, I did psychology and neurobiology with the intention of going into brain science. And I just thought, I don't want to spend my life in a lab. Why am I here? This is not how I want to understand or interact with people. Like, I don't want to see people as sets of cells. I, like, I want to, you know, encounter people. And so um, I, I chose archaeology, anthropology and Hispanic studies because it afforded me a lot of travel opportunities as an undergraduate and the chance to work directly with people on like uh, anthropological studies and things. And and I loved that and I, I loved everything about it. And I became more and more interdisciplinary as I went through the master's and PhD and really began to combine uh, psychology and theology and anthropology and history and archaeology and, and a whole bunch of things together. And 
and that was my passion and it still is my passion actually it's how can we be more interdisciplinary how can we bring our strengths from every area of life into one place and really Mm. benefit from the full fruits of our labor rather than living so much of your life out in the periphery and your job in inverted commas that you don't actually love and you don't thrive in and it's taken away from you almost more than it gives you so um that that's been my path I knew I wouldn't go into academia though like I was very clear about that even on the beginning of my PhD I knew I would never become a lecturer that was not my intention Mm. It does when you when you mention those those uh, areas of discipline, it does seem quite logical that that they fit so well together. I mean, you know, anthropology and um, the other things you talked about is like really there's really clear that they fit. So it's quite a fascinating journey. Yeah, it's been a, a magical journey from my point of view. And I had a wonderful mentor for eight years who was be, such a support in helping me to. Um, to step into the idea that you can be everything that you want to be. You can pull all the things together and that you can break the, you can break the model <laughs> or the mold. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So where did that take you? I mean, you've, you've now got a PhD, you're now a doctor. What happened then? So after the PhD, I, so I actually handed my PhD in and I was really a new for sure. It was either going to pass without corrections or <laughs> it wouldn't be accepted at all because it was so interdisciplinary and subversive that um, there, there was the possibility that they might just say no. <laughs> um, as it was, I passed the corrections. And so I left academia that day, essentially. And that was me. There was no more work to be done. And I was done. And I spent maybe a year, a little over a year, uh, working with a local charity, supporting them on their own sort of business development journey and reinvention. And uh, after I had finished with that project by which point I'd become the chairperson of the charity I started this business and I've been growing that ever since right okay so you so it led you to led you to where you are now yeah yeah and I still use my PhD every day like I literally open it up and you know pick things out of that that I, I use in my business all the time so it's it's been a very um it's beautiful to be able to, and I realize it's a privilege, but to be able to live a life where I, I've been able to sort of fluidly move one thing, one passion naturally became the next passion and, and it, it's all sort of connected. So what, I mean, do you want to say more about what your business is, how you, how you use your, your education in that, how you, how, I mean, it's, it's unusual for someone to use their PhD every, to every day from what I understand. So how do you do that? So I work almost exclusively with, female entrepreneurs it's not a requirement but it just tends to be the case that most of the people that come work with me are women and we're really looking at uh, breaking down the constructs of our society which we believe to be real and inviolable right but they are actually sets of collective agreement and there's sets of collective agreement that have actually very often been created to exclude particular people. So very often to exclude women and women's ways of being in the world, but also to exclude the BIPOC community, the LGBTQ plus community, both of which I am involved with. Um, and the neurodiverse community, the differently abled community and so on. Right. And so we're looking at these constructs and looking, is there a different way that you can intentionally construct your life and your business that's more congruent with who you actually are, not who you've been told you're supposed to be by a system that was made to oppress you. 
And so it's helping people to open up themselves and their business to their fullest potential by disengaging from toxic patterns that where we actually are uh, essentially complicit in our own suppression, where we're telling ourselves that we're smaller than we are and we're less valuable than we are, we're less capable than we are because of the programming that's built into the foundation of our society. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Society is a, is a collection of stories and and uh, and beliefs that we share. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, and it's and it's only those only by agreement that everything's by agreement that those those things stay there. As you actually rightly say, it's like and it's and that's been the, the way it has been since the day dot. I think. Yeah. Yeah, although it's interesting because you look at different forms of societies and so not all societies, for example, are hierarchical. They're also egalitarian societies where children and the elderly have positions that are equal but different to the sort of the main body of the, the active community, which is not the case in our society. So in our society, very often the perspectives and lived experience of children and the elderly are not accounted for and are essentially excluded. Well, they're not consumers, you see. They're not. They don't. They don't have any any access to money directly. So that's why yeah, they're, they're often excluded. Particularly for children, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, that can also go the other way with the older population, where there can be um, because there's so much money there that that can be a, a part of the community that is essentially inflated in terms of their influence. So it it can also look that way as well. And so I think recognizing that there are different models for society, that there are different models for economies, that there are different constructs of transaction and trade and money and things, is just such a useful way for people to explore their business and what they actually want to create. Mm. So where's the passion all of this for you? How do you how does that drive you? That's a wonderful question, actually. And I think it really started with the witch trials. So the case study of my PhD is the Scottish witch trials because that's a really amazing closed sort of, you know, you've got a, a few thousand accounts there. There's, you know, about maybe 4,000 accusations in total. Um, and although there, it's not women's perspectives in true form because they weren't shared directly from the women, these are, you know, court accounts. So they've been filtered by whatever guy was taking the notes and all the rest of it, right? So they're not completely unbiased. But it's an amazing capture of a different way of women being in the world in, you know, in this community where I live now just a couple of hundred years ago and just seeing how different their lived experience was, but also how difficult and the things that women were uh, put to death for and, and suffered brutal deaths. Um, just you know, a couple of hundred years ago, that we completely take for granted, and looking at you know how that culture has shifted, um, how we shifted away from beliefs in magic and into science, and then the sort of now recurrence in the idea of magic, and it got me so passionate and fired up about the 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 validity of the feminine experience in the world and how that has been excluded, and it's not just the detriment of women; it costs men a great deal as well because everything that is classified as feminine, like for example, feelings, men are not supposed to participate in that because that's a women's thing. And so it's by excluding the real lived experience of the feminine and the the cyclical way of being and the the deep compassion that women have through the process of birth and life and death and all these other pieces that we've created a world that's very machine-like, very clinicalized and very toxic actually for all people that experience it. 
And so seeing not just through my PhD, but also spent two years in a think tank looking at how our contemporary experience of the world has emerged from the big cultural shifts of the past 500 years. And so looking at how that sort of drilling in and like doubling down on this really masculine perspective and this amplification of the individual, what it's actually cost all of us. And it, it, it's so significant. It's really so significant. And so I found myself expecting my first daughter, my third child, but my first daughter in 2018 and something just snapped into place for me. And I was like, I can be part of the problem and I can amplify the the invisible inherent biases of our culture so that she receives her you know a dose of them too or I could try and change the world and um and that was what sort of that sparked it wow wow yeah 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 it's it's fascinating because the um didn't the first minister of scotland apologize for the witch trials recently yeah, they recently was a, um, what's the word now? Not an amnesty is not the word. Um, uh, a part, like they basically were pardoned. I can't remember what the word is now, yeah. but yes, they did, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I noticed the the male backlash against that in social media. And I thought to myself, hmm, guys, you know, we're living on another planet at the moment. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's interesting, actually. I think there's a lot right now at, there's a big shift towards women's lived experiences <clears throat> and a lot of guys are finding that very challenging. I think so. I think so. I'm not one of them, though. I, I, I can't live a balanced life in this one here and feelings, I'm often crying, so it's fine. I, I can deal with those just about. Yeah, I, I think actually, I mean, that's one of the things that attracted me to your podcast is that you're you're having these open conversations about being in the world and and about passion and life and stuff um and that's that's a wonderful thing and i think that it should be encouraged for everybody to be taking part in bigger conversations well we need to we need to find out what we're here for because we don't really know at the moment we're we're still we're still floundering around thinking it's about working and buying stuff you know it probably isn't (laughs) yeah I i think it's very safe to say that it isn't um, that's where the archaeology piece of my work really comes into its own because to be able to provide a different perspective on the on the materiality of the things that we engage with and how the, how materials actually kind of hijack our experience because we they're not neutral every physical thing that we engage with is acting back upon us and there's so much research that shows that that things promote particular thoughts things promote particular feelings and they're not the ones that we think that they will be. Mm. It nev- it, it's never what we think it's going to look like or feel like. Um, and so it, there's fantastic conversations to be had that really promote well-being where we start to think about, you know, what if we stop making our life about stuff? We start making it about what we actually want to feel that we thought the stuff would give us. It is fascinating when you look at the, um, I mean, going into anthropology and stuff, you know, when you think of the the journeys that people made to, to visit Stonehenge from all over the country. And that's the sort of thing I, I, I read at some stage where people were making a travel right away from as far as Orkney, all the way down to Stonehenge. And it makes them that, and that is such an effort to achieve that in a time when travel was walk. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it couldn't have been about buying. There had to be something deeper driving that, that, that commitment that everyone would do this. 
Yeah, it's it's fascinating actually when you look all over the world, there are <laughs> incredible pilgrimages for for different reasons that that people have undertaken, and in a, in a way that there is suffering involved in pilgrimage. It's not a physically comfortable experience, but it's a tremendous growth experience. Mm. Yes, yes, and a lot of religions still have pilgrimages part of their as part of their process, and for for, for good reason. And most of us don't do discomfort. Yeah, I think there's so much truth in that. And that's actually one of the blessings of my difficult childhood is that I experienced a lot of discomfort um, and that there are some really, really hard aspects of that. Don't get me wrong. There's been a lot of therapy and all the rest of it. And it, that's guided me also into the work that I do. Um, but I think being okay with being uncomfortable is probably one of the best and most useful things that I have now to carry with me as I move forward through life. Mm. Yeah, I'm okay in some areas, not so good in others. So working on that one still. Mm. I'm sure that's true for everyone. I definitely find social discomfort more challenging than physical discomfort. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I guess guess I have that one a bit as well sometimes. Uh, more so over the last two years, having not seen so many people around. So I'm, I'm not yeah. used. I'm not used to the physical interactions. I'm fine. It's interesting. I've discovered that the the, the onset of COVID and that's what's sort of, I'm you know barricading myself in my house effectively. Uh, you know, it, it's like I recognise that I am less warm to meeting people directly. Happy to do this, but less. Uh, I, and that's interesting. I know I never thought I'd get like that. I used to love people mm. being with people, so I must admit it's a, it's a journey we're all on at the moment. Yeah, I think globally we're all experiencing trauma associated with two years of social isolation and fear of sort of imminent danger and these other parts that comprise, uh, you know, global lockdowns and the experience of pandemic. No. Mm. Oh. Time to recover. So yeah. moving us forward into on my question set, like how do you define success for yourself? How do I define it for myself? Well, how do you experience success? What does success I, mean for you? So for me, success is something that I feel in my body and being. And if it doesn't feel like that, it's not success in my book. So for example, I want to feel calm and full of love and able to hold an incredible space. Um, I want to feel supported. And um, if it feels like it's manic and I have to push and it it requires my 24-hour attention and all the rest of it, that's not a success by my book. Now, don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean I never work hard. I do work hard, but I work hard in a way that feels... um, exciting and joyful and doesn't compromise my health (laughs) and um I think ultimately um that also shows in how we invest our money as we like as we have grown and our business has grown that um success for us has been about rather than say a bigger house it's been having a, a housekeeper as well as a cleaner and a gardener and a chef right like not necessarily all at the same time but um over the course of uh, any week or month that we will have these different people in supporting us in different ways that's for me success rather than saying hey you know I've upgraded to a nine-bedroom house or something mm, yes yes and uh 
those ways of doing it, it, it it's just a different shift it's just a different shift in terms of how you focus what's important for you it's, it's where you've done where you've come from uh, but I, as you say i mean the the, the nine bedroom house you can't live in all the rooms can you mm. for some people that would be if you're the kind of person that absolutely loves to have guests and all the rest of it then that could that could be a very valid measure of success for you if for you success is being able to have all your friends and family over in your home and stuff but for me that's not something that I really deeply desire I love my friends and family and getting together with them but I don't want to be the hostess with the hostess (laughs) (laughs) um and so I again another version of success for me is um, being able to get together for big family holidays somewhere where other people can take care of the, the yeah. cooking and you know all that kind of stuff, right? So um, I think it's really important that we each define it for ourselves. Has success changed for you over time? Uh, yes, because when I was younger and I was operating really from trauma drive, so I was still very much in that place of continually feeling that I had to prove myself and that there was some outside measure that was going to one day feel enough, I was very different as a person and I would work incredibly long hours to create the best possible essay that I could create. Um, And, you know, I really put myself into every project and I used to do far too many things. So for example, when I was doing my master's, I, um, I was doing a master's degree. I worked for... A, a branch of the Ministry of Justice working on the case, the victim case files of the most violent crimes in Britain. So it was a very emotionally taxing job. Mm. I was a, a volunteer journalist for the Red Cross working with the refugee community in Glasgow. So again, emotionally taxing. I was a, working as an editor for two journals and writing for other journals as well. And like the list goes on and on and on, right? Like, it, like the number of things I was just that I was doing simultaneously in that one year was insane and every minute of every day was accounted for including my one hour of crying time every day because I would do my I would do my job and the the I really can't communicate effectively how deeply devastating the case files of these um crimes were right um, and then I would go to do my master's and my master's is on the lived experience of uh, it's what we would call historical archaeology. So it's really the archaeology of us. So we're looking at things like um, the ongoing impacts of the slave trade in contemporary society and things like that. So again, very heavy, very emotionally taxing work. Then I would cry for an hour in my supervisor's office. So I'd just be like, nobody can hold all of this darkness and not cry about it. Um, and process of my own trauma at, at that same point as well. Um, and it, it was only partway into my PhD that I finally realized there's never going to be a, a certificate or a, there's not a qualification. There's not an amount of money in the bank that's going to make living like this worthwhile. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's nothing that's going to make pushing yourself to your performance edge in every capacity a in a, in a way that's toxic for you there's nothing that's going to repay you for that like and um, there has to be a, like a different way and it has to come from self-love and I made a huge shift at that point but 
before that my definition of success was I was looking for it out there and I was looking for you know what can what can I do to elicit a, a favorable response for the world around me that's going to tell me that I that I'm successful now mm. and the shift became I recognize it inside of myself and I like and I completely value it myself and that's how I was able to hand out a PhD that I genuinely believed might completely fail because I also knew that even if it did it was the best possible piece of work that I could create and I, I completely would stand by it no matter what um, and as it was they said it was a work of generational importance and that it would impact every field it interacted with should I take its publication and stuff and I had a, a really really favorable response but by that point I didn't care that didn't that I didn't rush off to then be like oh my goodness I've got to make it into a book so that I can get all that fame and all that acclaim or you know be noticed to be worthy I was just like okay that's great thanks and then I never published it hello it's your editor and host here oh we lost a few seconds during this conversation somehow a bit of glitch in the recording quality so I'm having to rejoin the conversation at contribution so look, that's success, and you know, I mean, and it's interesting that. But how do you see yourself as contributing in the world? That's the next question on my list. So contribution is something that is really important to me. And when I was younger, I contributed a great deal through voluntary work. So I've actually mentioned a couple of those examples already. Mm. Was uh, so working at a country park zoo, working as a volunteer journalist at the Red Cross, but there have been many others. As I've come more and more into myself, I've come to recognise that. The, the most important contribution that I could make is the one that's original to me rather than just giving my time into a particular, you know, sort of small role that I can show up to every day. And so where I look to create contribution now is by helping make these conversations, which represent 14 years in total of academic study um, and lived experience and taking part in, you know, conferences and, all, you know, like, being part of these big international conversations um, is to make these conversations accessible to people that, that otherwise wouldn't have the opportunity to access that education, right? So, and I don't necessarily mean by that um, people that only had a high school education. You could, you could have multiple degrees, but have never interacted with these kind of thoughts and topics before. You know, if, you, if I had stayed in sciences, for example, I would have never had this awareness that our entire reality is a, is a social construction, that our identities are drawn down from that shared reality in really predictable and patterned ways that don't actually serve us. So for me, my contribution now is how can I share this conversation more with others and how can I share it more with other thought leaders, with business leaders? How can I share it in a way that it impacts not only them, but their clients and the way that they serve in the world? And how can I um, bring this conversation into people's homes as well as into their businesses? And that's where things like my recent book have come into place. Um, and I really feel very compelled to invite everybody to feel like they belong in the big conversation. We, we have a culture that says that certain conversations are just for, you know, like it's for those people over there. It's for those people with these qualifications. It's for those politicians. It's, it, those are conversations for somebody else. But we actually each individually don't just have a responsibility. We have an innate human right to be part of and understand these big conversations that fundamentally shape our lived experience of being in the world. 
And so that's the contribution that I want to make now is how can I facilitate more people entering into bigger conversations and how can I facilitate them taking those conversations onward and you know, have a ripple effect? Mm, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's the point. I mean, that's the thing that I'm being acutely aware of doing this podcast is that a huge proportion of people in the world never consider the five questions that I've set out here. In fact, mm. some people have even come onto this podcast and been had to think about them. I go, you, but you're, you've, you've been, yeah, but I, did, I never actually sat down and thought about these questions. Um, and it is fascinating how many people can just go through life living it. On some level, I'm a bit envious that they can do that. <laughs> they have the capacity to be um, ignorant, not ignorant, it's not the word, but um, there's another word, it's not ignorant. It's um, innocent of it. And they can mm. experience a life from that place, from a place of innocence of it all. And still somehow have a life that works for them. Yeah. Because once you I know, think, you can't go back. <laughs> I, I think I think that's it. it. I mean, in the sort of spiritual circles, they often talk about it as awakening. Um, like w- before you have awakened, you don't know what you don't know, right? Nobody knows what they don't know. And it, it's easy to be sort of blissfully unaware um and and it can be challenging then when you become aware and the others around you are not aware and that's something I see a lot there's a lot of people that are kind of wake up and suddenly realize wow but also my partner my sister my friends like they're they're not they don't see these new things that I'm seeing and I think there's definitely space for normalizing bigger conversations and you know podcasts like this are a beautiful way to do that yeah and it's interesting how art you know imitates isn't it you know the, the matrix the red pill and the blue pill mm. I mean it's such a it, it, and it's used a lot in, in in marketing and advertising and people don't realize the depth of that thing the red or the blue <laughs> yeah it's so true and then when you get to the kind of level of conversation that I, that I invariably have with people we get to this the stage where we start to talk about how red and blue do red and blue objectively exist they're actually themselves constructs of how our human eyes function but they're not the way that other species experience the world and actually even different cultures draw the lines differently so we have the green man at the at the traffic crossing the Japanese is the exact same color man but they call him the blue man because the line between blue and green is a cultural construct I was reading somewhere that blue didn't actually exist in the English language up until a certain point in time and there's entry points for a whole number of colors. Purple yeah. is another color that um, that didn't independently exist until more recent as well. Um, and apparently the very first dye that was discovered was so expensive that uh, only the Roman emperors were allowed to wear purple. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I think it's really, it's important to understand that there are layers and layers and layers and layers. It's just always deeper you can go. And, you know, I'm pretty far into this rabbit hole of what is what is reality, what is identity. And it, in a lot of ways, also still just at the beginning, there's more than I will ever know in a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how do you contribute to yourself? I guess housekeepers and chefs is a good start. Uh, yes, but that's the sort of peripheral stuff that other yeah. people would immediately kind of recognise. For me... I see the person that I become in the world as my fundamental sort of instruction manual, if you like. Like that's what I'm that, what I'm here to do is to be, right? Yeah. The other the other things are wonderful consequences of me being me in the world. But fundamentally, 
I'm here to be me. And if I'm being something that's artificial, then that's not that's not what I'm here for, right? So I spend a lot of time on self-exploration and I prioritize that kind of uh, I don't want to say self-discovery because that's centering me more in the process than is actually really the re- the reality. It's more about being participant in the network of reality that we co-create with all different species and that unfolds and sort of across all different timelines. So, you know, what is my lifespan to a fly or to uh, a mountain, for example, right? Like to to be aware simultaneously of my relevance and irrelevance, to, to be physically in the world and not just to be sort of allowing life to bypass me behind a computer like um I think these are things that are really important for how we can stay grounded and also center our contribution around about like a much bigger conversation rather than to just get to a point where you're like wow I just want to fill my bank account with money um if you never look up it's really easy to think that you're the center of the universe and so I for example, sailing is a really important family pastime for us. And we spend a lot of time uh, on a sailboat interacting with the sea and the wind and uh, seeing whales and dolphins and things in their natural environment and, and being small. Mm, yes. And, and being small in that power, because, I mean, that's that must be. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there must be some frightening times sometimes when you're out in the out on the sea in the wind. Sometimes the wind's oh, more powerful yeah. than you than you like. Okay. <laughs> yeah, abso- absolutely. But it also means that, you know, we have a trust of where we have literally, our, our lives are, are in one another's hands. Yeah. And I, I think that's something that's beautiful and unique in our relationship that I think a lot of relationships have never really had to encounter. Um, and all of our children have sailed since they were in the womb. Um, and it's beautiful to be able to give them that gift of a... a of being part of the environment of, of of feeling native to your own body rather than thinking like you know I don't know what I am and why I am well of course you wouldn't if the only thing that you take in is social media tv shows that give you a fiction all the time um, so, and so that's actually another way that we contribute to ourselves we don't actually have a television we do sometimes choose to watch shows on like you know online or something like that but we it's a really great thing to not have the habit of just sitting down in front of TV every day. Mm, yes. I'm impressed with that. That's something that a lot of people could learn from. I limit mine, but I still do a lot of it. So yeah, but I'm still aware that I sometimes I kind of go watch too much TV. Mm. It's easy to do because it's designed specifically to get you to watch too much of it. Mm. Well, the social media is the same thing. It's designed to suck you in. Yeah. But that's yeah. another rabbit hole we're not going to choose to go down today. Yeah. <laughs> so what is the one question you like people to ask either of you or of themselves? That's a really good question. And I think a question that I would like people to ask of themselves is who do they really want to be in the world? Because we tend to get really obsessed with what we want to know and what we want to have and what we want other people to think about us and all of these other things that push us away from ourselves and push us away from, you know, really understanding our embodied purpose. And 
and when you do understand your embodied purpose, you're able to be in the world in a just a much deeper way and hold a much deeper space for others. Um, and that naturally attracts the things that you desire anyway. So that's the question I would say is, who do you want to be in the world? And that quite possibly would be a good question if people wanted to ask me a question. They want to really understand, you know, why I'm here, why I do what I do, why I'm so good at it, any of those kind of things. And to ask me who I want to be in the world would be to get a much deeper insight into me or into anybody. You know, it's a, it's a, an important question, I think, that we should all ask ourselves and others more. And what response do you get when you ask yourself that question? Who do I want to be? If I ask myself, who do you, who, if, if, if I ask myself, who do you want to be in the world? The easiest way to start to understand that is to change how you look at external reference, because we fundamentally construct ourselves through understanding, well, that's over there and this is over here. So I'm something in between these things. Like, and we kind of try to fill up all the space that's, that, that we think is supposed to be filled, but it's not. some of it's not meant for us and some of it's not the right thing for us and so on. So I use an exercise called the yes, please and no, thank you to help me answer that question for myself. And I really sit down and look at, is there anything that is an absolute yes, please that I know I'm really drawn to that I'm not actioning right now in my life? And what's holding me back from doing that? And also, is there anything that I've been saying yes to that should definitely be a no because it's not really aligned for me? It's not really who I am. It's not part of my embodied way of being in the world. And why am I not saying no to that? And then to just honor those no's and those yeses more. And the more I do that, the more I understand who I am in the world, right? Um, and the more my clients do that for themselves, the more they understand who they are. Mm, that's like a nice exercise. Thank you for sharing that with us. It's more fully described in my book as well. If anybody wants to go and you know jump into it more deeply, they'll find it there. Well, that leads us very nicely into telling us about what you do and about the book. Uh, so the book is called Unbecoming, Your Unorthodox Guide to Radical Wholeness. And it is an unpicking of many of the beliefs that we have around about things like identity and creativity and, and what it is to be in the world. So there's a lot of um, unraveling and some of that is very personal and I really demonstrate my own journey and some of it's very academic and drawn from my PhD. There's a, a mixture of all of that with the intention that at the end of it, people will have really made big strides in unbecoming the things that they were never supposed to be. They'll start to see, oh, wow, I was led to believe that this was real, but actually it's a social construct that was designed to hold me back and keep me small. Or, oh, I was led to believe I couldn't be that, but I can be that. There's nothing stopping me apart from just the belief. And I don't hold that belief anymore. Right. So that's the purpose of unbecoming and the bigger work that I do with entrepreneurs is to essentially take them through that process in a much more rapid way and then help them to construct a business that more accurately reflects their yes, please, and their no thank you and who they really are. Um, and also at the same time, 
deliver something more potent to their clients because ultimately we all want to work less and receive more we want and we do that what best when we give our true self you know when we when you put something that is as original and unique as you that can't possibly be replicated anywhere else exactly the way that you do it because you're the only you when you put that out there it automatically has a level of differentiation that's not possible when you just kind of mind all the gates that you're supposed to go through. Like, oh, can't go over there. That's we don't go over there. <laughs> that that that's the place that we're told that we're not meant to go. Um, and so it's really encouraging people to be interdisciplinary, to be brave, to share their real stories, and to you know work people through the mindset issues around about that. Mm. And how would people connect with you if they want to? Uh, people can connect with me on Facebook. Um, I'm just Morgana McCabe-Allen on there. Um, I have a Facebook group, which is called Unbecoming Aligned AF Purposeful Entrepreneurship, where mm-hmm. people can come and share in a more uh, closed environment where it's not public. Um, and my website is morganamccabeallen.com. And are you on LinkedIn and other social channels? I'm on Instagram. At the moment, that account is called Transformational Business. Um, we may review that, though, because as we're moving the branding to like align with the book, we've been kind of gradually renaming some of our social channels. And I'm currently not on LinkedIn because LinkedIn was a no thank you for me. Um, I was there and I found LinkedIn to be, um, it just, it just, I didn't love it. And I'm here to live a life that I love. Well, it's, <laughs> so. I guess it's very constructed in the world that you're talking about. Mm, yes it's just a a world of construct linkedin a bit Mm, it's actually the the edges it's starting to blur as facebook becomes more unmanageable it's starting to blur i think i think it's kind of becoming the business facebook yeah i'm hearing from people that linkedin is becoming a little bit more open to the sort of interdisciplinary wildness um so i I may find myself back there but i'm not on there at the moment um and the other place where I'd love to be is TikTok but I'm starting a brand new account there so I can't tell you what my new TikTok will be yet just that it's coming and if people follow me somewhere else they will soon see a night I don't quite get TikTok I just I just find it as a great big time suck it, it can be but TikTok is also a fabulous window into the sort of the the anthropology of the world because it is a very, very low barrier for entry. So there are people from all different cultures, all different ages, all different levels of education and all different uh, all different voices uh, represented there. And there's some incredible conversations in the BIPOC community and the LGBTQ plus community and the neurodiverse community. There's incredible conversations of um, feminism and there's, there's actually, there's a lot happening there that's really powerful. And I think that's part of the reason why people... Uh, on average it's the social media platform where people spend the most time i'm not surprised though because you can get pulled into it and that's why i've i've tried to stay away because i i get pulled yeah. into one video after another that's good that's funny that uh, uh, yeah where did, that, where did that last hour just disappear to I, I think with anything it's about being intentional i'm there for particular conversations that i engage in um but i don't spend time looking at cat videos and things oh well you see i'm a cat yeah. person I like cats a lot. But I don't <laughs> no, watch. I'm not. But I don't do cat I, videos. I know. But, <laughs> but an, an hour a day of cat videos would be too much. Um, so those are places that people either can connect with me now yeah. or soon, coming soon in the future. 
Um, and I'm very friendly and really just love to She's definitely very friendly. Connection. I can definitely tell she's very friendly, very friendly indeed. <laughs> so all those links will be available at the website lifepassionandbusiness.com or on the podcast app of your choosing. So we get to our last question, the one, the big question. Well, maybe big, may not be. Some people find it very big. What is the meaning of life for you? That is a really good question. I, I think the meaning of life to me is love. And I think that that is the, the universal vibration of the universe. Um, and I think that Patterns repeat themselves over and over again. We see that across, you know, all, all of, you can call it creation or evolution or call it whatever you want. But if you look at things like um, the way that a fern or a tree grows, it's, a fra- it's called a fractal or a snowflake is a fractal or a riverbed or a mountain range. Or if you were to zoom out, so you had like a lens that could see like a billion light years across what they project the universe would look like, look exactly like the back of an eye, like, or the, the neurology of the brain. These, these fractal patterns repeat over and over and over again. And the same happens with our emotional vibrations. When we operate from fear, fear, repeats the pattern repeats and amplifies repeats and amplifies repeats and amplifies and we've lived in that pattern for well for the past 500 years in a very profound way but it characterizes our all of our history and I really truly believe that the purpose is to create a pattern of love and have that pattern of love uh, repeat and amplify and repeat and amplify um, in the same way that uh, all of nature repeats and amplifies and if we could if we can live a life where our impact is to uh, repeat patterns of love over and over and to amplify that and to transmit that to the others that we engage with so that we are perpetually a, a source of love then I can't see any greater meaning to me than that personally that's a lovely answer thank you so much Morgana, thank you so much for today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. It's, it's, it's. Um, I think it's had a, a difference from a, from a lot of other podcasts I've had because you have a real, real sense of bridging the place between um, what people would call a traditional way of going about business. But you have you, you kind of bridged it for me into a, into a completely different area. So thank you for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been such a joy. All the best. Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to Life, Passion and Business with Paul Harvey and my guest, Dr. Morgana McCabe-Allen. Now you can find her book, Unbecoming, Your Unorthodox Guide to Radical Wholeness on Amazon and in all good bookshops. And I am reminded that while Amazon is the easy option, if you can support a bookshop, they will appreciate you. If you'd like to reach out to Morgana directly, please check out her website, which is morganamorcabeallen.com. Or you can find it on Facebook at Morgana McCabe. All of those links will be at the website Life, Passion and Business. Hopefully you have been following this podcast for a while and have explored the five questions for yourself. But if not, what's stopping you? You know, after hundreds of interviews, I can say with a hand on my heart that having answers to the questions about our passion a picture of success, an awareness of contribution, thoughts around the one question and a sense of what it all means. That is the path to a good life. Now look, 
you don't need me to tell you that our world is changing faster than at any other time certainly any time i can remember and we must be sure to know who we are and what we want out of this journey because we will not get it unless we choose it so please give it some thought because you know your future depends on it and if you'd like some help with that process do check out the resources tab at lifepassionandbusiness.com where you will find the five questions ebook and worksheets. Now this stuff is packed with exercises to help you on the journey towards self-discovery and it's at the amazing price of just $12.99. So do check that out at the resources tab at lifepassionandbusiness.com. Now finally, has this podcast been useful to you? If so, please consider giving us a five-star review on the app of your choosing and, of course, sharing it with a friend because that's how people like yourself find good podcasts. And that's it from me until Sunday. As always, thank you so much for being here with me on this journey. I so appreciate your time and attention. I'll catch you next time. All the best.